Thank you, Brandon. Your friendship, I feel the same way about it. This has been a great partnership and ministry, way to hold one another up, and I'm very grateful for it. As it turned out, because we were hosting, First Free was hosting this preaching conference this week, I'd asked somebody else to preach for me, um, our brand new 25-year-old pastoral res resident preaching his first sermon this, mo this morning, and he sent it to me early in the week um, for me to review it, um, and it was so good that I thought, well, I've got football on Saturday and all these other things, I'll just kind of work off of that. <laughs> so really, Chris is preaching for you. I'm just the mouthpiece. <laughs> last week, it was, it was uh, funny as I was reading Chris's sermon. Last week at First Free, I was kind of uh, pushing on the idol of our smartphones and talking about how those... Uh, they can be a curse. They can uh, take our, they can make us distracted from the things of God. They can make it hard for us to hear God's word, which was the effect that the idols within Hosea's day were having on them. So I kind of went on this little mini tirade. And then I looked at uh, Chris's sermon, Chris Helding's sermon on Tuesday. And the first thing he said was, I know Josh kind of went on a rant to get smartphones last week, but I kind of like them. <laughs> and the reason he said that he likes them, I agree with completely. And that is that global position system that is within your phones, that GPS. Um, very helpful for guys like me that don't want to admit it, but easily get lost. Or the big thing is like if you're in Dallas or if you're in another city that is big and you don't know it, you miss your turn. What is that lady start to say to you. She starts to redirect you or to reroute you. I actually got sick of listening to her, so I've got that British guy now <laughs> that's, that's talking on mine. But they start to reroute you um, to the place that you're supposed to be. Um, and that's one of the beauties about that. There's clearly, if you type something into your phone, there's one way and a best way. I mean, there's a best way to get to where it is that you're going. Um, but it's not the only way. There are alternate routes that you can take. Is this okay on the mic, or do you want me to try something else? Okay, okay, great. But in some situations in life, the alternate route just won't work. There's only one way to get to where it is that you're trying to go. For example... If you are in a cave, did any of you guys read about this Thai soccer team this last summer that got stuck in this cave? I'm sure you did, but if you didn't, let me just try and recount to you the way that this happened. They'd played this game and they were exploring this cave, a cave that they actually knew pretty well. They had been in before. And so they're, they're crawling down there. They'd got about two miles in walking all of these all of these things, everything was just fine, but what they didn't realize is it was monsoon season, and a monsoon had begun um, outside while they had come into the cave. And so after a few hours, they're wanting to come back out of the cave, 
and the cave is full of water. Some places are completely submerged beneath water. But here's the challenge. There is no other way out. That particular cave had one way in and one way out. There was all kinds of alternate routes within the cave, but they didn't lead to the surface. They didn't lead out. There's only one way through. Not a pleasant way. In fact, these boys couldn't swim, but only one way out. What we're going to find with Israel as we continue in our study of Hosea this morning is that there's only one way back to God. The book of Hosea is all about a relationship with God, depicted in this marriage metaphor that we've been looking at. But it's a pretty messed up relationship, a broken relationship. Instead of Israel being faithful to their God, they have run after other lovers. They have committed spiritual adultery in their relationship with God. Specifically, they've gone after other idols, the other gods within the land of Canaan. And they've started following their ways, the ways of the nations. You see, they're supposed to know God, to have a relationship with God. But they didn't know God. And what we learned last week is they didn't seem to want to know God. And so what God says is, I'll give you what you want. You don't want to be in relationship with me? I'll remove you from relationship with me. You don't want to know me? You won't know me. But here's the thing. You won't get the benefits of relationship with me either. You'll be cut off from knowing me and you'll be cut off from all of the fruit that comes from knowing me. But God does say there is a way back. But there's only one way back to him. And the message for this morning in in Hosea chapter 6 and 7 is that the only way to be restored to God is through repentance. If you're taking notes, that's my sermon in a sentence. The only way to restoration is through repentance. It's God's way or the highway, so to speak. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 6 and 7. Hosea chapter 6 and 7. I'm not putting the text on the screen. I don't have any slides, but I preach from God's Word. And so I really would like it if you've got your Bibles in front of you and you can have your finger on these verses that I'm walking through and see that what God's Word says is what He says and that I'm not making it up. So Hosea chapter 6 and 7. We're going to read kind of as we go along this morning. We're going to first, here's kind of the the way I'm dividing things this morning. We're going to first see what God has to say about these two things, restoration and repentance. And then we're going to look at these alternate routes that Israel was trying to take to get out of the cave, but that never gave them the light of day. So let's begin with restoration and repentance. This is what we learn. 
This is foundational for everything else I'm going to say today. So please hear this. God desires restoration. God desires restoration. That may seem obvious. That may go without saying, so to speak. But I'm not going to go on without saying it. Because it is so foundational for our understanding of what repentance ultimately looks like. And we could sure use some reassurance. If you've been, if you've been here at the bridge for the last few weeks and have been in Hosea and have been <laughs> in, in Amos before that, um, we need a little bit of reassurance every now and again, right? It's all about God's judgment on people's sin. And so we need to remember that God actually desires deeply restoration with his people. Remember in chapter five, God says he's going to tear Israel like a lion. That is a pretty severe picture. God's basically saying, I'm going to eat your lunch, Israel. And when you've got that image in your mind, you may be just a little reticent to return to God. What might happen when you return to God? But in chapter 6, we see what we need to see. Let's look at the first three verses. Come. It's an invitation. Let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So what's the reason for God's discipline? His tearing. It's actually to bring healing. What's the reason for him striking them with discipline and with judgment? It's in order to bind them up. What's the reason for him sending a drought on the land, as chapter 2, verse 13 talks about? It's so that he can bring rain on the land. This picture that we have this morning of this morning dew, of this mist, of this rain that's going to be all day, that's this picture of God's blessing that he wants to bring upon his people after the drought. God desires restoration. We have to know that. But there's also not only a desire, there's a requirement that God places on his people for restoration too. And that is God requires repentance. So God desires restoration. God requires repentance. Look again at verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. What is repentance? Repentance is a turning. It's a turning away from sin and following after the passions of the flesh, following after Satan, following after the world. It's turning away from that and it's turning back toward the Lord. It is, to use the marriage analogy that we see 
within the book of Hosea, it is forsaking all others and keeping only unto him for as long as we shall live. It's a 180, you see? It's turning in the other direction. But what was Israel doing? Israel was doing 360s. They're walking in circles right back in the direction that they go. They repent for a time, but then they just turn right back in to what it is that they've been doing. Friends, the Lord requires repentance, a full repentance, a long-term, to change the metaphor, love. That's that relational motif that we see within the book of Hosea. But Israel didn't have this long-term, committed, covenant love. Look at verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Friends, love that evaporates is no love at all. That's the picture here. It's this picture of a shallow pool of water that simply evaporates as soon as the sun comes up in the morning. There's no depth to it. There's no lasting nature to it. The love that God calls his people to in the Bible is called steadfast love. The Hebrew is chesed. It refers to a covenant relationship between God and his people. And God has covenanted with them. He has been faithful to them. That's why it makes sense that he would ask that we would be faithful to him in return. The covenant, steadfast love of the Lord calls for our covenant, steadfast love to him in return. And so God is vexed. Did you get that? What shall I do, God says. He's vexed because he truly, sincerely, deeply desires restoration but he also requires repentance. And he can't have one without the other. Where do you stand with relation, in relationship with God this morning? Let's just be honest for a minute. Are you in a committed, intimate, deep relationship with the God of the universe? For Jesus Christ? Or is there nothing there at all? Or is it this shallow puddle that won't last? I think as we go on this morning, it's good to stop and just do a little bit of heart work. Assess where are you at? And do you desire restoration with the Lord? I hope you do. But if you do, you need to know what God's word says. He requires repentance. 
If you want the blessing of relationship, you're going to have to go through the unpleasant water in that cave of repentance in order to see the light of day. God wants full repentance, a love that lasts. It's the only way. But our hearts, our sinful hearts, they want alternate roots. They don't want to have to go through that deep water of repentance. And so what we're going to look at with the rest of our time is three ways that we tend to seek alternate roots to kind of the benefits of restoration without the requirement of restoration, which is repentance. Three of Israel's alternate routes that they tried and didn't work, but really three alternate routes that we all try too that don't work either. The first is manipulation. Manipulation is a mindset that treats the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who sustains all things by the word of his power, the God that created us for relationship with him that treats that God like a cosmic vending machine. What do you do with a vending machine? You put in your money, you push the button, and out comes your Coke or your candy bar or whatever other thing that you like to get out of that candy machine, out of that vending machine. Vending machines demand very little from their patrons, right? Even less than the McDonald's drive-thru demands. At least there's a person there. They demand very little. You just put in a little and you get back. It's this transactional type of relationship, not a transformational, intimate, personal type of relationship. Israel wanted to get material blessings from God in exchange for their sacrifices. But God wants relationship, not just sacrifice. And so he finds this despicable. Look at verses 6 to 7. For I desire, and there's our word again, steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, which is relational, rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lay in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. Israel is manipulating God with their bulls, with their rams, with their grain, with their wine, with, with, with their offerings, with their sacrifices that they are bringing to God. And let there be no mistake, God is happy to bless his people in this context, but in the context of relationship, in the context of faithful 
relationship with God. Right? They want the benefits without the actual commitment. And we see that in our culture today. They've broken covenant with God. They've broken relationship. That's where you get this. They rob, they murder, all of these types of things. And they do bring sacrifices. They're doing that in order to get blessings. Skip down to the very end of this passage in chapter 7, verse 14, which is kind of the summary of the whole two chapters. And it tells us why they're engaging in sacrifices and this religious activity. They do not cry to me from the heart. That's what they don't do. What do they do? They wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. This wailing on their beds, this gashing themselves, that's the way the pagans did worship. And that's now the way that Israel is doing worship. They want grain. They want wine. And so they perform these religious rituals in hope that God may prosper them. That's what they're doing. But God won't have anything to do with it. God won't be treated like a fertility God. God won't be treated like Baal. God won't be treated like a cosmic vending machine. They're going to get something out of the machine. They're going to get a harvest. Chapter 6, verse 11 says, there's going to be a harvest. It's going to be a harvest of your head. It's going to be a harvest of judgment. The sickle's going to come through on you because you've treated me like a pagan fertility God. Friends, do you want a relationship with God? It requires full repentance. Not simply going to church or acting like a Christian in order to get some blessing. You know, some of us treat these Bibles of ours like something magic's gonna happen. If we just open the page, God will bless us instead of actually seeking to understand what God says and apply it to our lives, we think if we just check that box on our Bible reading plan for today, that that's going to do something. I hope as you do show up in that discipline that over the course of time, God will do something. But don't treat God like some good luck charm, some rabbit's foot. That if you just do your time, you're going to get God's blessings. Don't barter with God. Don't bargain with him. He wants relationship, not just a transaction. This pagan God stuff that we see in the Old Testament, it's like, We don't relate to that, but come on. We're just more sophisticated at it. 
which actually makes it way more dangerous. Let's look at the second one so you guys can get out of here at some point today. Second alternate route is deception. This is an attitude or a route that treats God like he's blind. It's an attitude that thinks that God doesn't see what we do in secret. Or an attitude that says, I'm unwilling to give up what I do in secret in order to have relationship with you. Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 7. Again, hear God's heart throughout this passage. When I would heal Israel, <laughs> there's that desire. The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. I say that the second alternate route is deception because of the way that we see Israel described. Verse 1, they deal falsely. Verse 3, they practice treachery. If you go down to verse 6, we see that they're sneaking around by night. They think God can't see. They, they think he's like me. You know, if I take off my glasses, I can't see a single one of you. But God's got 20-20 or whatever's the God version of that. I mean, he sees all of it. He's not duped by what's going on. In verse 1, their iniquity is revealed. Verse 2, God remembers their evil. Verse 2 again, their deeds are before him. He sees all of it. We're fooling ourselves to think that God doesn't see our deeds. But not only does he see their deeds, he sees their hearts. This comes out in verses four to seven. He sees that their hearts burn for more, more pleasure, more prosperity, more power, but not more God. They are adulterers, verse 4 says. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For their hearts, like an oven, they approached their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flame. All of them are as hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. All are hot. None call. That's the contrast. What I think is going on here, the ESV Study Bible talks about this, is the heat that's in an oven, it's inside, right? It's, it's locked in an oven. You, you may feel it a little bit on the outside, but most of the hot is in there. The human eye can only see 
that which happens on the outside, but God sees the heat of sin that is burning on the inside. Even if we're keeping it from other people, God knows what's actually going on in here. Isn't that scary? If we could put that up on the screen, would anybody be showing up to church today? I don't think so. Somebody once said, if you knew the heart of your pastor, you'd never let him be your pastor. But if he knew the heart of his people, he would never pastor those people. But here's the amazing thing. I wish I had this quote now that I'm thinking of it. God sees all of it. And even in view of all of that knowledge, he loves you more than your pastor who doesn't know all of that. So what do we do? What are we doing trying to fool God with our secret sins? What are we doing trying to hide from God? You may have others fooled by your secret sins, but he sees the deeds and the heart. If you think God's blind, you're going to be less inclined to return to him because you can just keep going but if you know that he's not blind and I think you all know it but if you really know it if you believe it then it only makes sense that we return to God friends you need to know something those desires that you're keeping secret you know what they are Most of them are false desires. The true desire for pleasure, the true desire for recognition, the true desire for just making it in this life only comes in God. It only comes in Christ. And so instead of just hiding these secret desires, confess them to the Lord and ask him to give you more. He is the one in Psalm 81 that says, I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The God who is able to save Egypt from Pharaoh is able to provide for them in the land of Canaan. The God who has saved you in Jesus Christ, he is able to fill your desires abundantly more than you could ever imagine. The third alternate route. I'm not done. That Israel thought would work was seeking deliverance through the world's solutions instead of through him. They didn't turn to God. Instead, what did Israel do? You saw it last week. They turned to the nations. They made political alliances. I mean, these are the people of God, a nation created by God, not like America, in a, in, a, in a very real sense, he was their king. A nation created by God. And who do they turn to when things turn south? They turn 
to the other nations to deliver them. And ironically, tragically, the nations they sought deliverance from were the very nations that God used to destroy them. They sought false saviors. Those false saviors actually were the thing they needed saved from. This comes out in verses 8 to 13, a little bit of a longer section. Let's read it. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. It is so sad that Israel would grovel before the nations instead of bowing in repentance before their God and return to him. Look at verse 16. They return but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. You see, things started to get bad for Israel when things started out under King Jeroboam. They were having all of this material prosperity. I mean, they were, they were a player on the, national, I mean, on the international scene. But because of their sin... There were consequences, and things started getting bad in their nation. And as they start to get bad, they look to these other nations to help them. They knew something was wrong. Sin was having its consequence. They knew they needed a change of direction. They turned to the right. They turned to the left. But they didn't turn upward to God. That's the picture here's my question for you. When your sin catches up with you, which it does from time to time, you're found out or you're suffering the consequences of mistakes that you've made, where do you turn? Do you turn to God or do you seek damage control through the world's solutions? In what ways do we seek worldly solutions? I mean, we all know the people that, you know, they've turned their lives over to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, so to speak, to deal with their problems, to make them feel better. And there are people, there are those of you here that maybe that's been part of your story. It's part of my story. But it's not just those sins that the culture deems bad that are the only ways that we turn to the right and to the left instead of turning upward to God. 
Don't we do the same thing with our pursuit of success? Don't we do the same thing with the pursuit of money? Don't we do the same thing with wanting to get that grade so you can get into that school so that you can on and on and on? Those things aren't inherently bad, but aren't in some ways they the ways that we are turning to the right and turning to the left instead of turning to God to deal with the issues that we face in our lives? Those are the world's solutions. Those are not God's solutions. And what about politics? That's what's being spoken of here. Israel was in decay. America is experiencing moral decay as well. But what do Christians do when they see the collapse of the moral fabric within this country? So often, they turn to the right or they turn to the left. But friends, when we see things crumbling around us, it doesn't make sense to look to politicians to deliver us from certain evils that they themselves are perpetuating in their lives. It doesn't make sense to seek salvation from Assyria in Assyria. But that's so often what we're doing in the way that we go after political saviors. There's nothing wrong with being involved in politics and caring about it. But we don't look to them to save us. We turn upward. We turn upward. And we need to remember that whatever it is that we're turning to other than God to deliver us, the pattern in God's word is that those things will eventually be the things that destroy us. But there's a bigger issue in my mind as I close than the destruction that comes through false gods. Something bigger than secret sin and manipulation. It's the question, why? Why do we not turn to God? Why are we prone to actually run from him instead of to run to him? I think it's because we have a wrong view of God. That's where we need to circle back to where we began. Who is God? Do you believe that God is good and that he wants your best? Or do you believe he wants to strip your life from you? Friends, God wants more for you than you want for yourself. He wants more for you than your parents want for you, that your employer wants from you. He has given everything for you. He gave his own son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not together with him graciously give us all things? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the only good life now is life in relationship with Christ? well, then you have to be willing to go through the water in that cave to get up to the light of day. 
You have to be willing to go through the painful and unpleasant process of repentance if you want the benefits of restoration with God. They are yours in Christ if you will receive them by faith and repentance. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would captivate our hearts with your goodness and your desire to bless us. Those boys in Thailand required thousands of people to help get them out of that cave, but you've made a way through one, through Jesus Christ. I pray we would look to him, we would see his love for us, and that we would love him with a steadfast love that leads us to repent of our sins, not just one time today, but ongoing throughout our days for the glory of your great name as you transform our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.